Hi, and welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Eva Ivashuk. And I'm Aaron Best. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. In this podcast series, we explore the ins and outs of the European Green Deal, the EU's flagship environmental initiative. And today we're talking about food. And to be more precise, we'll talk about farm to fork. This is the European Union's plan to tackle the environmental, health and social issues that are related to food production and consumption. Okay, well, Eva, in our last episode, we started with a quiz. And I thought this time, since we're talking about food systems, we could do a quick quiz that relates to the food journey from farm to fork. Are you ready? Bring it on. Okay. Question number one. You step into a room of 100 farm owners. And these farm owners statistically represent the EU. You say hello to a farmer. Is that person's farm likely to be small or big? I'm more likely to meet a big farmer. So I would say that most farms in Europe are big farms. The answer is small. Oh. About two-thirds of farms are smaller than five hectares, but okay. the largest 3% of farms provide more than half of the farming area in the EU. I would not expect that. This is quite surprising. Question number two. You leave this room where you just met the farmer through a magic door. It takes you to a random point in the EU. What are the chances that you're standing on an active farm? I'll give you a hint. It's somewhere between 20% and 50%. I'll go for 35%. Very close. So in 2016, 39% of the EU's land area was used for agriculture. Oh, okay. Question number three. So you're on this farm, and now you pull out your binoculars, and you're looking for birds. Are you likely to see more or fewer birds than you would have 15 years ago? So are populations recovering or still declining? So I'm afraid the answer is declining and there would be fewer birds than we would have seen 15 years ago. Unfortunately, that is correct. So between 2005 and 2020, farm bird populations declined by 17%. Ouch. Yeah. Lastly, and I'm sorry for this particular question, you turn around and you're standing next to a pile of the EU's entire annual food waste. How heavy is it? <laughs> I do imagine a pile the size of several Eiffel Towers at least. Um, and I find it quite hard to guess. Like, yeah. Uh, well, it is 88 million tons. And to put that in terms we can understand, that's about 173 kilograms per person. That is a shocking statistic. So, and as our listeners might suspect, we have experts with us today, two excellent experts who can help us understand how the European Union aims to address the different issues related to food consumption and production. So we have with us Lukasz Wyszek, who is a member of Franz Timmermans' cabinet. And to explain to our listeners, Mr. Timmermans is the vice president of the European Commission, who is responsible for leading the Commission's work on European Green Deal. And his cabinet is the team that supports him in this effort. In this team, Lukasz is the person responsible for the farm-to-fork strategy that we'll be discussing in today's episode. We also have with us Stefanie Wunder, our colleague at Ecologic Institute and a leading expert in the field of 
Transformation to Sustainable Food Systems, and Sustainable Land Use Practices. Among her many activities in this field, Stephanie was a member of an EU expert group that was convened to inform the legislative framework for the EU Farm to Fork strategy. Stephanie and Lucas, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation. Good to be here. Steffi, I have a first question for you. The Farm to Fork strategy takes a so-called food systems approach. Could you please explain to us what are food systems and why do we need such an approach? Yeah, I mean, this point you mentioned, this food system approach is indeed something that uh, we're quite glad to see in the farm to fork strategy. And actually, the title itself also already leads us to what is meant by this food system approach, which in fact means that you need to think food systems from production through processing uh, and consumption, but also As you mentioned in your introduction, you need to consider the whole question of food waste reduction and prevention uh, and thinking in circular food systems. So that that's one thing, think from production to consumption. This is uh, an aspect of, of food systems, but also this systematic view on the different components of food systems. And we can think of ecological components here, of economic components and social components. We could even add cultural ones, right? We all know that food is something also very deeply rooted in our culture. So you need to consider all these dimensions to come up with a good sustainable approach. And that's actually something that's quite well done in the farm to fork strategy, I think. And uh, thinking about this approach taken by the strategy, could you just spell out for our listeners the key objectives that the strategy takes with this approach? Yes. Um, so, so one part of the strategy is, you know, that it explains why we need to take a certain approach, and you know, what what are the general objectives, right? And in terms of the general reflect objectives, much of what I said is reflected. But there are also like some very concrete targets, like let's say a reduction of 50% of the use and risk of pesticides, a reduction of at least 20% of the use of fertilizers, a reduction of 50% in the sales of antimicrobials uh, used um, for farmed animals in aquaculture, uh, but also increasing you know, organic farming. So these are very specific concrete targets. Um, and there is a, a long list, you know, in the annex of the strategy of um, activities that, you know, will take place now, um, of measures that will be developed, like from, from change labeling on products, for example, to binding targets for food waste. So there are very specific activities that are designed to actually then help to fulfill the objectives of the strategy. Um, okay, and Lukas, I now have a question to you. The strategy that Steffi just described has been published two years ago, but it does need to be brought to life. And I wanted to ask you, where are we at today? What has happened in the last couple of years and what are the key upcoming developments? No, exactly. As as Stephanie said, the Farm to Fork strategy is, um, it, it is a strategy. So it basically paves the way of how to tackle the issues of food chain and how to build a sustainable food chain 
along the entirety, uh, the length and the width of the food chain itself. No single element can be tackled in isolation. And in order to make it happen, the Farm to Fork strategy contains 28, if I'm not mistaken, 28 different actions which are being rolled out. We started in uh, 2020. And the program goes as far as 2023, because in 2024, the mandate of this commission is going to come to an end. So quite a few initiatives have already been put forward. Most recently, last week, uh, the commission made a proposal for reducing the use and the risk of chemical pesticides by 50% by 2030. In parallel, uh, the commission also put forward a proposal on a farm sustainability data network. So this will help farmers and advisors to actually collect better data on what is happening at farm level. Later on this year, beginning of next year, uh, there's going to be a huge package of proposals which is aiming at providing consumers with better information about uh, the nutritional values of food and of the choices that they make. We're also going to put forward a proposal for certifying carbon removals uh, because, of course, land, the whole land sector uh, where agriculture and forestry belong can serve as a massive source of carbon removals. And towards the end of, towards the middle of next year, we will put forward a proposal for sustainable food systems, which essentially, and I will just spend a very short moment on that, which will try to replicate the success that the EU has had with food safety. You know, when you go to a supermarket, when you go to a restaurant, you are pretty sure that the food that you're buying uh, or you're cooking or that you're eating, uh, you're being served, is safe. And we want to replicate this for also the the dimension of sustainability so that everybody knows that food from the EU is not only safe, but it is also uh, sustainable. Uh, Lukas, many of our listeners may not know this, but uh, direct payments to farmers are actually the largest part of the EU budget. And that's via the Common Agricultural Policy or, or the CAP, as it's called, which is around 25% of the EU budget. Um, how do farm and fork and these farmer payments under the cap, how, how do they work together to achieve Green Deal objectives? And what are some areas where they still may be in conflict? Yeah, I, I really like the fact that you started with figures because that's where, A, it is quite nerdy. So by definition, I like it. Uh, <laughs> and secondly, uh, I think that you know we need to have as much facts and figures in these discussions because these discussions are often very, very emotional because they not only are in a direct contact with our everyday life. I mean, we all eat, uh, you know, at least three times a day, but it, it, all, it also affects the, the way our rural areas, what they look like, and, you know, last but certainly not least, uh, the way farmers live. Uh, and and where they generate their incomes, etc. So so I would like to you know continue this very nice trend that you started with using figures. And going back to your question on direct payments, so direct payments is essentially the money that represents the biggest bulk of the common agricultural policy. It is somewhere around forty to fifty billion euros per year for, if I remember correctly, for about seven and a half million beneficiaries across the EU. And that is money that is given to farmers for respecting certain basic agricultural conditions. Now, you mentioned 
a figure that about two-thirds of farmers or two-thirds of farms are smaller than five hectares, which of course is correct. I will give you another figure, which I think is quite shocking. And that is that 80% of these direct payments go to 20% of beneficiaries who are not sometimes even actually farmers. They are landowners because the way this, the policy is set up, it rewards land ownership rather than good practices on that land. This is what we have tried to change with the common agricultural policy, which is going to kick in on 1st of January 2023. Um, the instrument which is there and, uh, well, which will be there and which is not there now is something called eco schemes. Eco schemes, which will represent about 25% of the budget uh, of the direct payments. Uh, so that's around over the whole period of seven years, that's about 50 billion euros. These eco-schemes will be paying farmers for carrying out, you know, the good practices, the good management practices, which are not only beneficial for the environment and for the climate, but they are also beneficial for increasing the resilience of those farms in the face of climate crisis, in the face of biodiversity crisis. Is the cap going to be perfect? I don't think so. But the eco schemes certainly are a pretty enormous step in the absolutely right direction. Yeah, thank you. And and Stephanie, what's your view on this? Uh, is the Green Deal making effective use of the EU's cap? Well, um, I think Lucas just did a good start in like you know what has changed to the better. But I think my final conclusion about how well do they fit together is still a clear: the cap is not made yet to achieve the objectives uh, of the farm to fork strategy by far uh, because of the many aspects that we need to see like let's take something that probably will come up later as well the whole question of our need to change diets towards more plant-based products which obviously means at the same time also to decrease animal products and what we eat in our diets. And of course, if we have that food system thinking, that also would mean that we try to better match production and consumption, which obviously also means that we need to change how many animals, for example, we produce and, uh, and keep uh, on European farmland. Like To put it in easier language, like we really need to make sure that 100% of the cap money is actually paying towards public goods. So we call it like, you know, public money for public goods. We touched already in several moments on the different environmental objectives or elements of the farm to fork. And I wanted to ask you about the food security aspect. Some critics of farm to fork say that the strategy would reduce the overall volume of food produced in Europe. They add that this could displace the negative environmental impacts of food production outside. And of course, the question of, as I said, food security comes to mind. That's a topic that has risen considerably on the agenda in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Lukasz, what is your view on this? Do you, do you agree that we can pursue the environmental and climate objectives and also ensure the food security? I don't think that we have a choice other than doing this together, because you know, agriculture is a sector which is completely dependent on the climate. Uh, it is completely dependent on the natural environment. 
And at the same time, it is the sector that's going to be, well, that already is being hit as the first by the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. And this is really the strong point of the Green Deal and the Farm to Fork strategy. It sees the development of farmers' incomes in conjunction with improving the sustainability of farming. But there's also the other dimension, which I think is, you know, we have to take very, very seriously. And that is the potential of European agriculture to continue uh, to maintain the current levels of production and to ensure the sector grows in a sustainable way. We are in a situation where 70% of EU soils are in an unhealthy condition. We are in a situation where one in three bee and butterfly species in the EU are in decline and in one in 10 species is on the verge of extinction. I mean, this is about our ability to maintain food security, to maintain livelihoods of farmers, to maintain vibrant rural areas. If we cannot solve the two issues at the same time, then I think we have a very, very serious problem. Stephanie, food waste is something that happens all along the supply chain. Could you walk us through this a little bit? Could you tell us what are the key issues here and what changes would be the most effective to reduce food waste overall? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the 80, 80 million tons we talked about, this is not even covering what's, you know, what's left on the field. And I would start this journey there. And we often call food waste actually a symptom of a problem, right? It's much more rooted in this, you know, how do our food systems work? And so why is that stuff still left on the field? Well, this is because, you know, farmers do have contracts with retailers. Uh, in these contracts, they need to promise a certain amount to be produced by a certain date to not lose their contracts, they're obviously overproducing because you never know what kind of uh, drought you get or what other problems you get. So that's one part. You also obviously produce stuff that's not looking nicely, right? So retailer won't take it, right? Because of many reasons and many cosmetic standards. Um, then we go to the retail sector um, and here, there's often not a good management, actually, to really make sure that stuff is sold by date, is then maybe reduced if it's close to expire, all that kind of stuff. There are actually no real incentives in the system. And then the consumption stage is something that we all you know, well understand. I mean, nobody is actively wasting food because that's a real target. It's obviously a more collateral damage, right? You have gas, you provide too much, you forget stuff in the fridge, you don't really know how to store it, you have kids and they don't eat. And the solution how to tackle that is not really easy. Uh, and obviously, it also depends on where in the food chain we have a look. If we look more to the, the production and, and retail side, it really would help if we would have binding targets, uh, if we have a clear assessment methodology um, and force actors to collect this data of what's wasted. What we do know from other areas, let's say, uh, use less water, fly less, whatever, you know, all the other kinds of environmental um, objectives is that social norms do have an impact on the behavior of people. And social norms is a means that we really unconsciously have a look what others do. So if we see it's very normal not to waste, um, then we rather waste less as well. But that's just like obviously scratching the surface to give you a rough idea how complex the whole question of food waste 
is and how to tackle it. Lukas, what are some of the main things that Farm to Fork is doing to address this issue of food waste, the things that Stephanie identified? There's essentially three categories of, of issues or drivers of food waste. One is the structural one, one is the regulatory one, and one is the behavioral one. And as Stephanie has mentioned, uh, pretty good examples of all three categories. In the regulatory one, the farm to fork strategy is trying to fix is the issue of marketing standards. So essentially, we want to create a system which does not push farmers to leave part of the harvest on the field and find an outlet for this. So that's an initiative which is coming out in the next few months. The other example of a regulatory initiative that is coming up is, again, uh, Stephanie has been talking about that, and that's clearer labeling on, you know, sell by, uh, best before, use by, etc., because this can become very confusing also if different systems are used in different countries in different visualizations. So that's something that we will try to fix. Now, on the behavioral uh, side of it. And let's also be very clear that most food waste actually happens at household level. So there's something that you know we all can do. To give you an example, which uh, comes from an analysis done by the Potsdam Institute, the amount of cereal wasted in the EU equals about half of wheat exports from Ukraine. Uh, so it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. And, and we know from statistics that most of the food that gets wasted is actually bread because, you know, we don't know how to look after bread and we always buy far too much of it. There's the behavioral part of it. And then there's also the structural side of it, which is, and again, Stephanie uh, hinted on that in her previous answer. That is about how our food systems are actually set up. Uh, and if you look at another very interesting figure, if you look at the fact that two-thirds of cereals in the EU are actually fed to animals rather than to people, it also makes you think whether there's something to be fixed in this approach. So we're, we're getting ever closer here to the fork part of uh, Farm to Fork. And a really important step uh, is at the store where people buy their food. Um, Lukas, one, one of the ways that Farm to Fork proposes to help inform consumers at the store is through labels on food. But we have nutrition labels on all those packages already. So why is what we have not enough? Someone a while back told me that it takes about seven seconds for most of us to decide what we're going to buy. Uh, so clearly, you're absolutely right. A lot of the information is on the product, but it's not that easy to understand. And so the Farm to Fork strategy has announced a, a number of initiatives. One is on a mandatory front of pack nutritional labeling. So that is a system where we would like to, you know, make the key information about the nutritional values of the product easy to understand. It should be understood immediately. There was a survey that was conducted by a consumer organization last year, which revealed that, uh, you know, an overwhelming majority of citizens, they want to have a more balanced diet. They want to eat more, uh, you know, plant-based diet with less red meat, with less processed product. But then, these wishes are not necessarily translated into the choices that they make as consumers. So what we would like to do is not to tell people what to eat. Uh, first of all, that's not our competence. Uh, secondly, it's not our role. And thirdly, you know, I failed with that with my own children. Um, 
But what we want is to help them make the right choices that they wish to make as citizens and, and enable them to translate those uh, wishes into the choices that they make as consumers. So that's on nutrition. And then the second part of the work that we are conducting is on sustainability labeling, which is going to be part of the proposal for sustainable food systems next year, which and this is what I was talking about in the very beginning of this podcast, which should enable and inform consumers about the sustainability attributes of the product so that, again, they can make the right choice. And Stephanie, could you comment also about this labeling issue, especially you know, given that we work for an environmental research institute, about these non-nutrition aspects like environment and climate? What's important to consider there uh, for consumers and, and how do we communicate that effectively? I'm not a big fan of labels, actually. I mean, Lucas already said that, you know, even the second seven seconds to decide, that's really the top range because that's something you all know. You're in routines, right? Last week at an event, I heard from a, a nutritionist also, like, we don't eat what we like. We like what we eat. So that means it's really important to start the whole question of sustainable diets at another angle, which is like really starting in schools and kindergartens to have a different public procurement. So like, you know, shape what people eat there because that changes their tastes and their, you know, the, the habits are you know really shaped early. And this conscious reflection on what's on a label, that's something that is not playing such a big role as you would think. We have some very um, effective labels, like let's say the organic label is some, something everybody knows, or like a lot of people know, you know, that what we can see in, in surveys. Um, that's good, but you have a really label proliferation there. There are plenty of labels that people are just confused of and that actually also contribute to greenwashing, right? Uh, and in terms of sustainability labeling there, labeling, there are some significant trade-offs that we could run into because Let's take an example that probably everybody can easily understand is um, you want to buy chicken, right? And if you then take a criteria, let's say how climate friendly is it, because that's something people would love to know, is my diet climate friendly, then all the kind of stuff that we know about intensive farming would actually contribute to very um, positive climate marks. And, and this is then something like, oops, we need to consider that together with biodiversity, animal welfare, all that kind of stuff. It's good to work on labels, but please don't consider it as a silver bullet. And we really need to have, again, an integrative perspective on what is sustainable. I completely agree that you know we should not end up with uh, some sort of a logo jungle on products. And in a way, you know, in if we lived in an ideal world, we should not even need any labels. Labels should be pretty useless. We don't have a label for saying that the food product is safe. Consumers automatically assume that what they buy is safe. And I think we should strive for the same when it comes to sustainability. Consumers should be sure they should take it for granted that the product that they're buying has been produced and traveled through the food chain in the most sustainable way. Unfortunately, this is very difficult to achieve, at least in the next few years. Um, I hope we'll get there eventually. And until we get there, 
we need to create the value of sustainability and uh, we need to be able to help consumers to, you know, look from farm to the fork. I definitely agree that actually in, in the end we should not need any labels. And I would go one step further or just like, you know, frame that partly differently. We really need to work on sustainable so-called food environments, you know, that makes the, the good choice, the easy choice. I would even say like, do the whole data collection on, you know, how well it's produced and all that kind of stuff, but don't bother the consumer with that, right? It, it should be that in the end, then the retailer saying like, I don't buy that product or please uh, produce it, change your recipe, change your product design, you know, make it more plant-based, just like uh, integrate more biodiverse ingredients, all that kind of stuff. Let's uh, talk more about plant-based diets. And I know, Eva, this was a, a topic that you very much wanted to talk about today. Yes, absolutely. And also, uh, especially as your Steffi mentioned now that, you know, we're creatures of habit and some of those habits are hard to break or, or change. And when it comes to, you know, meat production and consumption, this is definitely a topic of concern for many people who are interested in healthy diets and in protecting the natural environment. We know that livestock production impacts a lot of the areas that the European Green Deal tries to address. It drives greenhouse gas emissions. It is a leading threat to biodiversity. And on the consumption side, it has many negative health effects, especially the overconsumption of processed meat that can lead to heart disease, strokes, and cancer. Despite those impacts, Farm to Fork stops short of saying that we need to drastically reduce the production and consumption of meat. And Lukasz, I wanted to ask you, why do you think meat is such a politically sensitive topic and so notoriously difficult to address? Well, it is, in my opinion, it is linked to the facts that I have already mentioned, which is that, uh, you know, it's, it's not only the fact that two thirds of cereals are fed to animals, but it's also the fact that 68% of land in the EU is actually used to feed animals. I mean, to be fair, about half of that is grassland, so it's unsuitable for food production. But the other half of that is arable land, which could be easily used for food production. It is Again, a bit more complicated than that, but the long and the short of it is that, you know, the food system that we have in the EU is hugely dependent on livestock production. The other aspect of it is that, you know, a diet is a very, very personal thing. And I think that people get, for the right reasons, they get, uh, it's a step too far when they feel that someone tells them that they should be eating less of this or more of that. So I think that's what makes it sensitive. But you said that the farm to fork strategy stayed short of putting forward an idea that the EU should drastically reduce the number of animals, which is correct. Nevertheless, what the Green Deal uh, has done, what the Fit for 55 uh, legislative package has done is that it has made a proposal to make the land sector climate neutral by 2035. Because, you know, at the end of the day, and the health reasons aside, if we look at the emissions, what matters is how we reduce those emissions. And the target for climate neutrality in the land sector, which includes agriculture, land use and forestry, is very clear. It has to be climate neutral by 2035, which means that, you know, member states will have to figure out how they do it. And considering the fact that livestock constitutes a huge part of the contribution towards greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture, um, they will need to tackle it. 
Uh, Stephanie, in light of the difficulties that Lukas has described both on the production and on the consumption side, do you have ideas how policy can help promote plant-based diets without upsetting producers and alienating consumers? Yes, I do agree that you know through the climate targets of the European Union, there is a good chance to reduce emissions from the land use sector, which in essence means that we maybe get a grip on you know meat production to go to the consumption side. And also here, there's nothing really in the farm to fork strategies. This is really an area where kind of shied away from the huge problem that we had. Um, I, I would you know include maybe some introductory sentence in terms of like why we really really need to address that. Um, we um, it doesn't really matter if you look like from a health side, from a biodiversity side, from a climate side. Uh, it, it all tells you that we really need to reduce our animal product consumption. So it's not just meat, it's also like dairy and eggs and stuff. There's a, a great concept that's called planetary health diets where like very prestigious group of researchers had a look on how can we feed 10 billion people in 2050 with a healthy diet within planetary boundaries. It really has a global perspective and that would mean that we would really drastically need to reduce that um, you know, meat consumption. And it's really not about telling people what to eat or prohibiting anything. It's really using the usual instruments we have to shape uh, or to support a different diet, which is, and that's one of the very most effective ones, uh, public procurement. So we have public money already invested in food, in kindergarten, in school, in hospitals, you know, all that, in prisons even, right? Um, so we can use that to really produce tasty food that's simply more plant-based, right? Then obviously we have the the financial instruments at hand. Um, people then usually ask like, oh God, is meat then a luxury? No, it's not. Currently vegetables are the luxury. Please do compare, you know, the, the price you have per kilogram on meat and, and some of the vegetables you buy. Um, that really makes a difference. So right now we, we do have um, the possibility even from like the EU regulatory side to reduce the value added tax of fruits and vegetables to zero percent and that would help both a plant-based diet and uh, please let's not forget the war we're into that would also reduce food poverty and really support healthier uh, diets and allow people to afford the healthy food. Stephanie made a really really important point and that is the role of public institutions the role of national institutions regional local institutions but even the role of companies and Uh, you know, we have some really good examples from to stay in Germany, from cities like Frankfurt on public procurement, but also outside of Germany, from Italy, from Rome, from Vienna, where, you know, these schemes where public procurement works with organic products, with local products, uh, and this creates the value which in the end constitutes the food environment, as Stephanie very, very correctly set. And, and this really is the objective of the farm to fork strategy. But let me be very clear, with the 28 actions of the farm to fork strategy, we can regulate and we will, but the regulation, it depends a lot on behavior. It depends on the involvement of national institutions, of regional, local institutions as well, on the education system. Um, if you look at the obesity of children at schools, I think it's really worrying. So we're down to our closing question. 
And um, that is, the two of you each spend a lot of time thinking about sustainable food production and consumption. How has that knowledge influenced your own food choices? And what do you think our listeners could do today in the existing environment to make their diets more sustainable? Lukas, let's start with you. Well, I've... um... My my approach to food, uh, you know, com- coming originally from the Czech Republic, where the diet is very fat and meat oriented, but um, I've had the luck of marrying an Indian lady uh, who was vegetarian at the time when we met. So that really changed my diet, and you know, as uh, life progresses, um, and as you know, the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables becomes better and better, even here in Belgium, where I am now, it gives you more choices. But I think what it really has helped me is to take more interest in where the food comes from, how it's been made, what health aspects it has. And I think that's the gift that we can all give to ourselves. And Stephanie, what about you? Yeah, you asked um, if if my knowledge actually uh, influenced my own food choices. And I can really say definitely it does. Obviously, as a as a researcher, you also see like what are really the um, the most important leverages of changing the food system, and that's something I would maybe give also to our listeners uh, as a reflection. The most important points that you can change in you know to also contribute to more sustainable food systems is a to have a plant-based diet. You know, in the IPCC report, you see like this is the most effective consumption side um, instrument you have. It's, it's not the energy use. It's really plant-based diets. Plant-based means not, you can still eat some meat, but very, very little. And the second one is to really cut down on your food waste. And the third thing is like also to make sure that what you buy um, is produced as environmentally friendly as possible. So, you know, don't try to be perfect, just go the good steps, but be aware where the, the big points are and, and don't get too confused on, on the small points. Stephanie and Lucas, uh, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss Farm to Fork and the future of food policy in the EU. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank Bye-bye. you. So, Eva, we made the journey today all the way from farm to fork. Uh, what sticks out for you from that conversation? I think the biggest takeaway for me is this you know, concept of food systems and how much it stood out in the conversation we just had, right? Because as we prepared for this episode, we wanted to discuss certain topics. We want to talk about food waste, about meat, about production. But actually, all those topics were kind of popping up here and there. So... As they mentioned food waste, they also talk about animal feed. As they talked about labels, they had to discuss other elements. The food security was also connected to the uh, degree of plant or not plant-based diet in our diet. So I think that it is clear to me, as it is apparently clear to policymakers in Europe, that we do have to think in a systemic way. Yeah, and I think that connects this this food system perspective also connects just these very different aspects of uh, of concerns in terms of environmental aspects, social aspects, cultural aspects, nutritional aspects, you know, so it's it's all those stages of of the process and and the so-called food chain that they spoke about, but it's all these also these really different areas of life uh 
that are affected and and come together. And I, I think that's a really healthy change in in policy to speak explicitly in terms uh, of a system um, and uh, for more people involved in that system to to recognize that that's what they're a part of. Exactly. And in this context, I think Steffi at some point mentioned the concept of food environments uh, and how, you know, we might give people as much information as possible, but if the environment in which you exist and take choices, since we are creatures of habits, does not help you take certain choices, you know, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have because there's a moment that you will be tired, you will be looking for convenience, you'll be looking for comfort. And in those moments, I think quite often um, the all the knowledge you have and all the good intentions you have might uh, simply take a backseat. Yeah. One thing that um, Stephanie mentioned was, she mentioned it in something she said about just scratching the surface. And I, I really felt that about our discussion today that we really were just scratching the surface of this issue and uh because there's so many parts it's so interconnected it's so complex it's such a a big part of the eu budget you know and there's so many factors in terms of the you know the the economic uh issues in, in agriculture um and and the you know the food security uh issue and the environmental issue, all, all these things and the way they interrelate. Um, other thing about this discussion that struck me was, you know, the, the connection of agriculture to two of the major environmental crises that we have, right? So the biodiversity aspect um, due to this intensive agricultural production, due to the use of pesticides and all the, the effects that's having on insect populations to talk about more <laughs> complex system interrelations. So that's, that's one aspect. And then also then the climate crisis. And we, we really didn't go into details today about the climate aspect and those interrelationships. I mean, we really could do a whole show just on, on that as well. And Stephanie, I think she could not be more clear if we want to do something, adopting a more plant-based diet is definitely a very achievable step to do that. One of the sustainable development goals, goal number two, is uh, zero hunger. Mm-hmm. But in the EU context, in monitoring nutrition, obesity is actually the issue vis-a-vis the hunger problem that exists elsewhere in the world. And that's an issue that we really didn't talk about today. But it's also very important from the standpoint of food systems, food environments, the choices and the things that are available to people when they make choices about what to eat and whether it's healthy uh, and how much to eat as well. Exactly. And I think that then goes back to this topic of the food environments and the labels, because unfortunately, I think the way our food environment is set up today is that eating healthy is an effort and requires a lot of own research. Not eating healthy is easier and cheaper for an average urban dweller, at least, you know, Mm. and that's something that has changed vastly. Uh, Of course, you know, there are good aspects of it. In general, you know, food is much more accessible to us than it was to our grandparents, for example, but then it brought with it this curse, making it actually a challenge to nourish yourself in a way that's good for you. It's like so many other things in life the barrier to doing the thing you want to do isn't so much that it's hard to do that. It's that it's much easier to do something else. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think we've been like 
in a way, evolutionary programmed, you know, to yeah. like minimize effort. Yeah. Oh, it's easier <laughs> to go there. Okay. I'll go there. Wait, why am I here? <laughs> oh, because it was easy. Exactly. No. We'd like to thank you for joining us today on our journey through the food system from farm to fork. Next time, we'll be speaking about something that we definitely do not want in our food, plastics. We would love to hear from you, our listeners. Let us know if anything that we discussed today has sparked your curiosity, if you have any questions about the topic of food, or ideas for future episodes, or any topics you would like us to tackle in the future. You can get in touch with us via contact form on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. We also invite you to follow us on Instagram at greendealbigdeal, where you can reach out to us via the messages or comments. So please get in touch. We will release a new episode each month. You can find the episodes on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection. The ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Karl Lehmann, Eva Ivashuk and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebli. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Run. Special thanks to Philip Katz, Hikaru Hayakawa, Ramiro de la Vega, Michael Lawrence, Dirte Kemper and Camila Bausch.